Welcome to Bring It to the Altar, a new podcast proudly brought to you by the One Spirit Interfaith Foundation. Founded in London in 1996, One Spirit Interfaith Foundation is an educational charity training open-hearted adults, exploring interfaith ministry, spiritual counselling, sacred activism and the world's many faith paths. In our fourth episode, you meet Reverend Pippa Jones. A graduate of the One Spirit Learning Alliance in New York, Pippa was ordained in 2012 and is currently based in Sydney, Australia, where this conversation was recorded. As well as being an interfaith minister, Pippa is a teacher and a student, having recently completed a Theology and Comparative Religious Studies degree at the Australian Catholic University. This is a powerful and beautiful episode, exploring interfaith ministry, sacred activism, and how the One Spirit training can deeply change us from the inside, if we let it. Here she is with One Spirit's creative lead, Amy Firth. We all remember where we were that morning of September 11, 2001. Today's guest, Pippa Jones, certainly remembers too, because she was there, mere blocks from the Twin Towers when those planes hit. As you'll learn, Pippa Jones has the fierce intelligence and vast heartfulness to articulate beautifully how life-changing experiences can bring us into deeper connection, inviting us to pour our lives into healing separation, both within ourselves and in the world. This interview was the first time I'd ever met Pippa, and I fell in love with her immediately. I'm pretty sure you will too. My name's Amy Firth. Welcome to Bring It to the Altar. I'd love to hear in your own words what is it that draws you to the work of one spirit it's a complex question mm. of course mm. multi-layered I'll try to do it justice but there is a historical element to it of course and that very much is that I think myself, like many people in the world, I was, and I still haven't decided if I was fortunate or unfortunate (laughs) to have grown up in a family that did not ascribe or prescribe any form of religion. So my mother was, I think, intent upon nurturing our spirituality, but not forcing it into a box which is fine in some instances, but then as I grew from teenagehood into my early 20s, with such a deep curiosity 
and a yearning, for want of a better word. Mm. I had nowhere to place it. And when I went to university the first time, it was only a year, but in that year, I was introduced for the first time in my life to a group of Christians who had a profound effect on me. And I think that Christianity at that point in my life appealed to me in some senses because I'm a very, I'm a lover of the word, it mm. turns out. <laughs> I always thought that that would be in reading and writing, but it turns out that obviously innate in me is this desire to unpack what word is. Because if you read either, well, especially in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. Mm. And to jump forward a little on my stole, I've done words mm. in different languages and different scripts because it just embodies, I think, my deep passion to understand meaning through word. Mm. and it didn't take me long it probably took about a space of four to five years to realize that though I loved the Christian um, focus on studying the Bible I actually of my own volition studied it for two years I felt constrained and I think Part of that was due to a lot of the, especially in the evangelical circles, as I was experiencing, was very constrained and there was a lot of rules and regulations. And especially if your mentality or sexuality fell outside of those parameters, there really was nowhere to go. And my great compassion is for people who aren't, who don't feel that they do fit mm. the marginalized and especially from sexual identity as well, feeling that God judges them. Mm. Because in my case, it set me off on a tangent. And as you know, a rock that leaves any kind of sphere and circular motion, when it does hit a tangent, it goes and it goes mm. a long <laughs> way, which is really what dictated perhaps the next 10 years of my life. And I think that September the 11th had a the most profound effect on my life. I had been teaching for a while and had the very great privilege of teaching at two universities, a beautiful school in London. I'd landed almost a dream job in the Czech Republic for two years. But I made the decision in 2001 that I wanted to take time out of education and just do something for me. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, of all places, attending a summer intensive course at the New York Film Institute, <laughs> which was an amazing experience. But of course, without realizing, I placed myself as an American citizen for the first time as an adult back living in the United States not only in um, New York City, but in Manhattan. Mm. And there I was on that Tuesday morning, but blocks from the Twin Towers. And 
those events were every kind of adjective that you could throw at it. And I remember standing. I didn't actually see the planes hit, because at this point I was in an internet cafe and was really unaware of what was going on. But once we were evacuated and I saw the towers both burning and suddenly realized in the midst of all of that horror that I was watching in front of my very eyes the world as I knew it change, Mm. that I moved in some senses out of my insular, myopic life. And in that moment, I entered something universal. It's Mm. very hard to explain. Mm. I can't talk about it without getting emotional. Mm. And I realized that life, as I knew it, and everyone else knew it, and for the future generations, that something would never be the same again. Mm. And I think it became twofold. I think it did bring me, in many senses, to my knees. Mm. Because, of course, there we were in the midst of it, and we didn't know, was this the start of war? Was I going to die? I didn't know anyone in Manhattan at that point. And then I also had this profound, and again, I'll use this word, universal sense that this was going to ricochet Mm. around the world and change the globe and change life as we knew it. And I saw a problem. Mm. And I'd never, and to this day, I still don't really fully understand what that problem was, but that was like a giant cry out for something. Mm. Was it understanding? Was it a big no? Who was angry? What were they angry about? Where were our fingerprints on this? Who was at fault? Was I at fault? Were we all at fault? All of these huge existential questions came flooding into my life. And I know I'm not alone. And my response was a little bit like peeling an onion in that I realized each layer upon layer upon layer upon layer that something in me wanted to be part of the solution, Mm. if solution is the word, Mm. or at least answer. Mm. And I remember people, because they were confused and hurt and angry, it was very easy to get angry about Osama bin Laden and Muslims. But I also know people who, like me, one of my very great teachers said that in that week, For the first time in his life, he picked up a Koran because he said, what's going on? Mm. Why why are we at war in this way? And where am I to blame and what do I need to know and what do I need to understand? And I think that I told you it was twofold and on a personal basis, what it did is it somehow just shattered all of the protection mechanisms that I put in place and exposed this deep yearning spirituality Mm. that there was more to life than just what I could see visual 
and I had run away like Job. Mm. And suddenly there I was standing outside Nineveh watching Nineveh burn and say, my goodness, I, I, I ran from something and now I want to run back into the arms of it, but I just don't know what it is. And thus I began, as I now understand it, the spiritual quest of my life. Mm. But I knew that based on my experiences before, I didn't want it to be a religious pursuit as we know it, but that it had to meet this yearning mm. of spiritual need and connection that I'd not allowed myself to feel until that point. And it was nine years later that that quest and that journey landed me in the doors of Interfaith Seminary. Mm. Not because I wanted to be an interfaith minister, but because I knew somewhere amongst these incredible people, these teachers and these practitioners of all these traditions, there was a commonality, there was a purpose, and I wanted to know that. Mm. Oh, I just, hand on heart, hear you from the depths of me. <laughs> and I trust too that people that are drawn to listen to this podcast hear you deeply. There's so much truth that resonates in what you're saying and I think there's a particular shared experience for people who are drawn to this field, who are able to follow that that thread of curiosity and sometimes for some of us it is we are smashed against it without a choice but to truly see and and follow yes and, and I felt sorry to interrupt yeah. that I felt I'd learned enough in those years of what divided us and now I was on a quest to find out what united us because I had a feeling that there was more to this human experience than the material mm. and very often in the busyness of our western lives our first world nations were driven by these very material needs and pursuits which are not wrong mm. but there's more mm. and this was the the overriding need and desire that I was beginning to get in touch with and I had a beautiful friend. She became well. She was my teacher, and then she became a friend, uh, August Gold. And she had had this persistent nagging over that summer. Create a church, create a church, and of course, for her, church is very much as the way I was describing it. She didn't want to do something inside the parameters of established religion. She just wanted to create perhaps church with a small c, mm. community, mm. a meeting place, a gathering, a place somewhere where people could come and learn and grow. And it was nagging her, nagging her, nagging her. And in the end, on Sunday, the 9th of September, 2001, she opened her doors to something new. She didn't even really know what she was creating at that point. Mm. I can't remember how many people attended. August, if you're listening, you can call in and tell us, <laughs> but it was a handful. 
but she said that following Sunday, mm. it was standing room only. Mm. Why? Mm. Because when you are witness to something that cataclysmic, it does what I think it did to me, and it peels you of all of your layers of protection. Mm. And you're naked, in a way. And I think it exposes people to perhaps the spiritual side of themselves that they sometimes don't always either give time to or even really know where to put it. Mm. And I think that speaks to something very universal. Mm. And I know people in Manhattan, for example, who were working in the financial district and said, you know what, I'm done. Mm. I want to be a yoga teacher. Yeah. I've always wanted to be a yoga teacher mm. and I've had to, you know, I, I chose to pursue this career now I want to do something else. Mm. People who were in the banking industry who've became artists, other people who said, I don't want to live in the city anymore, I want to get back to nature. It had a multiple effect on people that I knew and was surrounded by and it seems that the common denominator was people were getting touch getting in touch with their innate selves yes yeah it's definitely part of what feels like a wider awakening that's taking place across our planet definitely something that feels very alive in those 16 17 years since that fateful day in September goodness isn't it 17 years my god yeah but I think as well it's a I know in in positive psychology they'd talk about it as as post-traumatic growth you know there's there's often that threshold where the the willingness I think to truly be with and turn towards something that has shattered you and splintered you and turned you inside out can be that catalyst for, for growth and inquiry and ultimately the invitation to to sit and be with those questions why what is this mm. <laughs> who am i what what is happening i can't remember which poet said it but i thought it was so beautiful the sacred wound mm. i certainly feel it's something that will resonate amongst the people who are drawn to this work. There is a shared understanding. Perhaps that's too much of a generalization, but I think it would be fair to say that uh, it's a shared experience of people drawn to this work who do so because of the yearning for healing. And I, and I don't mean that in a sort of, in a way of being cured. I'm, I mean that in the sense of healing as a, as a wholeness, as a coming back together, as a returning to. It's certainly in my view something that I feel the world needs more than ever, but is also equally more capable than ever. <laughs> yeah, I think you raise an interesting point because, and again, to use New York as an example, if you, as I did in the 12 years that I was very privileged to live there, not only did we go through the horrors of 9-11, but also, for example, hurricanes, uh, storms that took out electricity for a while. There was a blackout in 
the early to mid 2000s I can't remember exactly now but that's when no electricity was operating so people who were living in tall buildings mm -hmm. had no way of getting up and down the stairs and the beautiful response that people have in these moments of shared you know, uh, trauma or problems is that and it's a beautiful thing is that people's natural proclivity on the whole is to be of assistance mm. to one another. Mm. And so many beautiful stories of people running up and down huge numbers of flights of stairs to go and care for their elderly neighbor. Mm. Um, it brings out the best in us. It really does. And I saw it time and time and time again. And I think that that call to ministry, and I'm always a little wary of that word because it, it has a religious tone to it. Yes. And I think that that can sometimes be a barrier to people and put them off, but that that desire to be of service mm. and to say, look, we're all in this together <laughs> and let me help you and let me, by me helping you or by me being with you or by me listening to you, by me giving space for you, you in turn will be giving to me mm. that beautiful reciprocity of life. That's really the draw for me, mm. especially in one spirit. I'm being encouraged to circle back to something you said before about standing in front of those flaming towers. There was something so visceral around the division that existed in the world and something about the breaking in you which which turned you towards that yearning for the unity and and it wasn't so much about what divided us but what united us and how much that's become such a part of your path yes. since then. I wonder where you are on that path. It's funny because I'm, I'm a language teacher at the moment mm. and it's always a joy and I make it my business in every language that I come in connection with. And we get people from all over the world in our school, is to learn to say at least five different phrases of something like, hello, good morning, thank you, goodbye, please, mm. nice to meet you. Because there's something so profound that stops people in their tracks if even for a second you stand there and use their language mm. to greet them a little bit as the Hindus say namaste to see you and them and them and you and mm. the divine and all of us and it never fails to bless someone yeah because they're always used to having to speak in the lingua franca of our world now which of course is English and we're very blessed you and I that that's mm. our first language mm. but these poor people are having to learn it as their second third or fourth language sometimes more and I feel that's what interfaith is mm. is we're learning the phrases to be able to say look I, I'll never be an expert in your language because you grew up with it mm. And even if I studied it for 20 years, I still wouldn't really fully appreciate the nuances and the very slight differences between things. But at least I'm making an effort because why? I want to impress you with my knowledge? No. Because all I want to say is 
this is your expression of being and I want to honor that. Mm, I see you. That's it. And it's amazing if you're in a cab and you say to the cab driver, you ascertain that he or she is Muslim and you realize that this is the penultimate night of Ramadan. Mm. And so you say to them, oh, what are your plans for breaking Ramadan tomorrow? Are you going to a restaurant? Are you having family? And they almost break. <laughs> How would you even know that? And mm. why would you even care? It's so beautiful. Mm. Mm. Or to be able to just say peace in 15 or 20 different ways. Uh, and that's really was my motivation and still is that I sadly, I wish I could, I wish I'd started this journey <laughs> back in my teenage years, <laughs> but I'll never be proficient in Hinduism or Judaism or Islam but I at least want to learn as much as I can so that I can in some way understand who you are and respect where you're coming from mm. and find some commonality. Enjoy the differences, but also find the commonality. Mm. Because religion, as I've realized, is not just a thing that you do on a particular day, but it does inform your identity and your and it language and spirituality and history and all these things are like DNA strands, they're interwoven mm. and it's not our job to splice them apart, it's mm. just our job to say I'm so interested in you mm. and your history I remember the very first time I held in my hand a collection of some of the Upanishads I'd never even heard of them mm. before I went to seminary and when I realized that these were penned 5,000 years ago when language was just formulating up in the Indus Valley I was stunned mm. that this kind of wisdom and appreciation and understanding and a formulation of explaining the mysterious it was there in my hands I'd never even heard of it before mm. and I thought oh I discovered this 20 or 30 years ago I can't but I can just feed on it hungrily so that in some way I can understand my brothers and sisters who for whom this is their path mm. and mm. this is their expression mm. oh, I hear you sister <laughs> I hear you it's that sense of of the bow I'm thinking of a particular sort of greeting exercise we, we did in our seminary training, which is, you know, the, the different ways of bowing to each other with that sense of, you know, I see you. Mm -hmm. how, how does this transform our world? I will answer that question in a second, but I have to tell you this beautiful visual thing since this is a podcast and any chance we get to be visual is great. Please. The beautiful inspiring, incredibly motivating teacher that I have had the privilege of hearing a few times in the last few years. His name is Andrew Harvey. And in one of the talks he gave, and I hope that I'm quoting him correctly, he was recalling growing up in India where his parents, I believe, were missionaries. 
And he talked about how in India, of course, it's all about color, which mm. I love. And apparently in this one room, there were different colors of curtains on the windows. And as the sun moved around the house, the color of the room would change. Mm. And I thought to myself, what a beautiful way of describing spirituality. Yes. Same sun. Yes. Different window, different color. Mm. Same light. Mm. And your other question was, ah, it was a great one. How does our devotion and commitment to truly seeing each other transform our world? I mentioned August Gold's name and she created what a church that would become known as Sacred Center. It was every Sunday afternoon, oh, sorry, morning. And there was a beautiful meditation. And I'll try and do it justice. And I, I choose deliberately the pronoun I and me because it used to be we and our, but I made it personal. And that when you hear me say it, you'll understand why. Peace in my heart brings peace to my family. Peace to my family brings peace to my community. Peace in my community brings peace to my nation. And peace in my nation brings peace to the world. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. And that has informed everything that I do and think and say and read and believe because I feel it's very easy to objectify and externalize peace. But as people like Gandhi showed us, it's your reaction to the world around you that brings the peace. It has to start with us. It's not an ephemeral thing, it's a very real thing. And wherever I'm not at peace, and I'm at war with myself or at war with the world, that needs addressing because then when I can uh, meet my needs, heal my wounds, deal with my issues, I can be a channel of peace. Mm. So in a way, I think sometimes the question is the wrong way around, you know? Yes. Yes. I'm so pleased and grateful you took us there. It was a very leading and loaded question, but it's, it's, it's taken us into the stream of this conversation that feels so alive in the world right now. And for those of you who are listening, who are interested, there's a beautiful practice called Tonglen and Pema Chodron is a, from America, is a fantastic teacher on this very thing about <clears throat> using your meditation to and, and yourself 
to be the crucible in which you identify with the needs and the hurts and the pains and the wounds of the world because it's in us that this alchemic reaction takes place and therefore we can be ministers of peace, mm. I believe. Mm. It's not easy. Every day I <laughs> have to live with myself and the wretched things that I think and do and say sometimes. Mm. But that's the journey. That's it. I feel like so much of my seminary journey was exactly that. That, that sense of going to your edges, holding up the views you hold about yourself and others, holding it up to that light and asking, is this true? Where did I learn this? Why do I hold this? Does this serve me? Does this serve the world? An excruciating process. It's mm. sort of like sandblasting away your inner world. And yet it felt so, it felt like such important work because I, I... The most important. Yes. Yes. Because it, it actually brought me closer and somehow deepened my faith that in doing this work, it was the most important thing I could do to, to bring peace. That's it. And to embody peace. I spent some time in a refugee camp last April with a... a a group called Sacred Activists, which was born from Andrew Harvey's work oh. and so many parallels. It's just, there's so, yeah. And when I came back from that trip, all that I was left to reflect on in terms of what can I do? How do I process this experience? What can I do to be of help? How do I make a difference? It took so much courage and devotion but as I sat with it, all that kept coming through was this sense of you need to allow home those parts of you that are so abandoned mm -hmm. <laughs> and your inner war-torn territories and your inner refugees and your inner lost and adorable children who are hated for yes. no reason. It's so uncomfortable and it's so... I think that the tipping point for me and the vulnerability that comes with it is that sense of... It's such an act of faith to trust that that work makes a difference. Mm. I think if we trust that the inner work of seeking peace is just as important as the outer work, how do we trust that? Well, one informs the other, I think. Mm. Because we are at the mercy of our motivations and our reactions. And those need tending to, you know. I think one of the most life-changing parts of seminary was sitting in Diane Burke's class about shadow. Mm. And very often some religious traditions externalize it. Often becomes known as the devil. It's out there, it's, it's tempting me. Mm. And we will never be rid of it. And I think it's a mistake to think, oh, I'm going into ministry, I'm going to learn about this tradition and let it inform my life. But we always have to remember that we are yin and yang. Mm. But that in the darkness is that beautiful pocket of light and in the light is that pocket of darkness and it's all circular, it's all part of the same thing. Mm. Um, and I think that 
we have to make peace with that. Mm. It feels true to say as well that particularly I think for anyone on a spiritual path, whatever that might be, but particularly for people who are drawn to the interfaith training, there's a sense of, of, of an awareness as subtle or as, as strong as it might be of, of something that's in, in need of healing. Yes. There's that sense of something being broken or a sense of we didn't quite belong anywhere else or we didn't quite fit anywhere else. And so I, I say this lovingly, but we're a, we're a, a scrumptious bunch of misfits, really. <laughs> and a phrase we often use at our introductory days, which we host for people who are curious and drawn to the training but want to learn more, is this sense of ultimately the training is there to gift people back to themselves. Beautiful. It's such a beautiful, simple, and yet still quite cryptic mm. sentence. And it's very interesting how the two questions that you asked have somehow become part of the same circle. Because yes. I'm thinking of when uh, I was studying the Bible in those two years I told you about, and the, the guy who was running the center um, said, and he always used to say this, if you point the finger, there's always three pointing back at you. <laughs> and very often, you know, the, the that's the problem, and you put your hand up and you realize, oops. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's three pointing back at me. Mm. And August Gold, who I'd mentioned earlier, always used to say, every thing that you see, every need, every issue, every problem, somewhere is our fingerprints. Mm. Mm, I love that. We're all culpable. Mm. And I think when we understand that, we can begin to address mm. the needs and the wounds and the challenges of this world. Mm. What's coming up for me too is that is that essence of even if we have a yearning or even in our deepest moments of surrender on our knees buckled in grief or grace whatever it might be we may be yearning and praying for something but we are only able to do that because we have that deeper knowing or knowledge that there is more yeah. there is potential for more we have to have that awareness in order to even ask so again it sort of brings us back to that Rumi quote of it's not about the seeking it's about the removing the barriers to love it's not about the progress it's about a state of being yes and about being that peace in the world embodying that in our lives in That's every right. moment and Victor Victor Frankl's book of course man's search for meaning was a um, central book for me on on the beginning of that seminary journey because I thought <clears throat> if you can be in a death camp and still be in touch with that need for meaning and for somehow for that to allow that to imbue you with peace irrespective of your circumstances and the grave injustice of it all mm. I thought oh, that's what I want to mm. that's what I want to discover 
the biggest thing that I could say to anyone who's thinking, yearning, questioning, interested in this training, interested in something before, during and after this training is to ask the questions and then be open to that, both to the answer and to the provision. Because it's a little bit like having a baby. There's never a convenient time <laughs> and you're never going to have enough money. <laughs> but if you just jump, trusting that the right way will come and everything that you need will come with it, mm. you're never too old, you're never too young. You don't have to be a white middle-class person, thank God. Yeah. You don't have to be educated, but you can be. Mm. You don't have to be of the male or the female persuasion, it doesn't matter. It's irrespective of your background, your sexuality, your story. What I've realized is that in life, all are welcome. That's it. Mm. All are welcome. I think that's God. I think that's purpose. I think that's what we call the universe sometimes, is this huge welcome sign. And instead of being like the motel that has the no vacancy sign outside, there's, there are vacancies waiting to be filled, and that's you. All are welcome and believe in the magic. You've got to be open to it because it's not about what we can do and what we can afford and how much money we can save. You've got to be open to the magic because it will come if you're open to it. I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad our paths have crossed. Me too. And I see you. And I see you. <laughs> Thank you so and much. And though we're on the radio, <laughs> I see you too. to the altar. Stay tuned for episode 5, where you'll meet Monica Douglas Clark. Also known as the Rebel Reverend, Monica inspires change makers and business rebels to be authentic, abundant and fulfilled. Ordained with One Spirit in 2015, she is also a dedicated yoga practitioner and transformational guide, an advocate of equality and diversity and is passionate about providing spiritual counselling for people of all faiths or none to connect to their own inner wisdom. This episode feels like a meditation. It's slow and spacious and filled with exquisite wisdom treasure. Until then, you can find us on Instagram at bringittothealtar and for more information visit interfaithfoundation.org.